You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. If in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for Yahweh your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of Yahweh, and by their word every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Yahweh, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of Yahweh. When you go out to war against your enemies, and Yahweh your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, And you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house, and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, 
His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. Welcome back. This is another episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is my show. Episode 668 of it. Today is Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. That was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 21 in the English Standard Version. Some interesting things, right? Interesting things. Lots to ponder. Lots of food for thought here. In this episode, I want to talk about Christians and civil disobedience or submission to authority. I want to talk about narratives and purpose and belonging and what it means to have justice served or what it means for someone to be at odds with the authorities. Can you be in the right and be at odds with those who are in authority. We'll talk about that and much more in this episode. But before we do, we have some interesting law here to consider. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Let's start with unsolved murders. For one thing, this whole business of there being a kind of stain on the nation of Israel, when you don't know who killed this person, how did they come to be dead in a field. No one saw the murder, apparently. They just found this man dead in the middle of nowhere. This idea that there's a stain on the character of the people unless atonement is made, unless the elders of the city come out, which is to say that there is such a thing as elders of a city, which I would imagine is something of a corollary to a city council, so to speak, or the assembled judges, something like that. These are the chief men of the town, but it's men, right? These are men, for one thing. It's not men and women. It's the men. They are the heads of their families. They are, by extension, the ones who are going to work out deals and arrangements and negotiate and smooth over any conflict between their respective houses. These are going to be the men when they are the elders of the city, because how would it be if you had the men being elders over their families and yet their wives, for instance, or their daughters-in-law were actually the elders of the city? That would be untoward, and that would create all kinds of confusion, because then you would have the elders 
actually kind of sort of under the authority of their wives, even though they're supposed to be over their wives, they're supposed to be heads over their wives. But that isn't to say that these men are always going to be elders over the city if they are heads over their houses. And also, oh, by the way, in case this isn't obvious, the elders of the city are not going to be in authority over each and every individual woman as they would be over their own wives, over their own families. But there's something about the men of the city who are the chief men, who are the elders over their city and being the heads of their household that comes into play here. And there's a significance to these men representing their city and representing their families, their tribes, their nation, and doing what is right in the sight of Yahweh to purge the guilt of innocent blood from their midst. They make an oath that they did not shed the blood of this innocent person. Now, we say innocent, and someone might chime in and say, well, none are innocent. But this is referring to how, humanly speaking, we relate to one another. And so it's helpful to remember that in relation to God, yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then in relation to one another, it's okay for us to have a category for people wherein we say they are innocent. Also, oh, by the way, if you don't have a category for innocent as opposed to guilty, then all killing, all shedding of blood is murder. But then that can't be. That's not a biblical understanding of violence or war, for instance, or the capital punishment that is appropriate in the case of certain kinds of sin, certain kinds of crime, we would say. But really, sin is crime. Crime is sin. These are one and the same, even though in our popular conception, when we say crime, what we really mean is you've violated the laws of man. And when we say sin, we mean we've violated the laws of God. Ideally, and this would be a very Burkean and a very conservative idea, according to what I'm reading in Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot, ideally, our conception of what is criminal and our conception of what is sin would be the same, but it's not uh, necessarily so, as we will, again, get into in this episode. But you have capital punishment that is appropriate in the case of murder, for instance. If it was observed that this person not only was murdered, but murdered by that guy, and there were two or three witnesses who saw the deed, whether it was a crime of passion or it was cold-blooded, premeditated when the murderer thought no one was looking, but we do have two or three witnesses, and it has to be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. One is not enough. This is a checks and balances that God is prescribing, by the way. You have the elders of the city that is closest being selected. Why? Because the city that the man who was slain is closest to is the most likely source for where he was from, but also more to the point where his killer was from and where his killer returned to after the murder. And you have the elders testifying, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. 
And why is that significant? Well, for one, because these elders are charged with administering justice. And if they themselves are the killer, or if they themselves commissioned someone else, hired someone else, ordered someone else to commit this murder, then they are by extension guilty. If they saw it done and they are protecting the one who did it, let's say, for instance, if it's a member of their own family, that also is a sin. They're supposed to be a witness and an impartial witness at that. And so they take this testifying business before the Lord to do what is right in the sight of Yahweh and to pledge they did not kill this murder victim. They didn't see it done. They don't know who did it. But there's this curious business, this curious ritual that is prescribed, it's commanded. You're taking a heifer that has never done work and breaking its neck there in the valley. And there is a kind of atoning sacrifice, but it's a different setting. It's a different placement. It's a different animal with different requirements than you would find in the case of other atoning sacrifices. And oh, by the way, there's something curious in that this is a collective guilt. And I've said a lot against thinking about justice as collective instead of individual, but there is something here. I have to give credit to Tim Keller. Maybe I have made too much of a blanket rejection of some of his talk of collective justice in the past. It's here, right? It is here. There's a sense of blood guilt being on the elders of this city if they don't do this, blood guilt being on the elders of the city if they did commit the murder or they know who did it and they're running interference. There's a sense in which there's blood guilt on the nation if it's known who the murderer is and justice is not being served. And yet these men testify and God knows whether their testifying is correct. And who knows, maybe along the way, if they know better and they know that they're going to have to go through this ritual, maybe their conscience really gets to them and they stop showing partiality. They stop covering for who they know did it. And so there's a sense in which it is a fault of the society, it seems, on my reading of this, if the conditions leading up to the murder, resulting in murder, and then immediately after the murdered man is found, if the conditions in society are such that there was a kind of apathy or neglect to stop this before it took that drastic turn, Atonement needs to be made for that. That's a curious business. It really is. I think meditating on this more would be very wise, but we feel it. That's safe to say. We feel it. I certainly feel it when I hear that somebody has been found murdered and the killer is not known and it's an unsolved murder. And the older such stories are, say for instance, when you every now and then will find that a murder case has been unsolved for decades. Or in the case of serial killers, that's also very chilling when you know that there are certain trademarks. It looks like someone has committed a string of murders, but we don't know who they are. They've covered their tracks well. They've done it in secret. There's a perversity to that. There's a contamination that you feel, 
on that vicinity, on that area, perhaps on a certain part of town, but perhaps on the whole town, perhaps on the whole county, perhaps on the whole state and the whole country, if you have that being something of a matter of course, at a certain point, yes, right? We have to recognize something has badly broken in the way that justice is served and in the way that the community is functioning, in the way that society is functioning, if someone is able to commit murders and get away with it, God takes that seriously. We should take that more seriously. And I say we, not because there aren't detectives who make it their profession to get to the bottom of these things, to solve mysteries, to solve murders, to figure out who did it, to bring those people to justice. There are definitely honorable men who do a very, very hard job in their detective work. But as a community, we also have a part to play in this. It's not none of our business. It does pertain to us. This is our affair. If someone is murdered in my neighborhood, it is my business. Because what am I thinking as a husband, as a father, if the murderer is still at large, What if the next victim, if there's a next victim, what if the next victim is my wife or my children or my friends, my extended family? What if the next intended victim were me? At that point, it certainly becomes my business. But if I know that there is a murderer at large, or I have reason to believe there's a murderer at large in the community, I think it's already my business. If I heard that there was a rabid dog in the neighborhood, and I were told that, that would be my business. If I heard that there were a mountain lion in the vicinity, that would be my business before I even see it, just to know that it's around, it would be my business to be protective over those under my care and also to love my neighbor as myself. I also am going to be looking out for my neighbor, not just my wife, my children, also my neighbor's wife, my neighbor's children. And so I think that's part of what we have in view here is when that stops being the case, when people only care about themselves or they only care about their family, they only care about their wife, they only care about their children in the sense of being protective, something has broken. And that makes it easier for sin and vice and evil to rule the roost, to dominate, to take over, to corrupt more generally, more broadly. But let's consider also, because there's a lot here, let's consider starting in verse 10, from 10 to 14, this idea of seeing a beautiful woman who is a captive of an enemy. And here we understand this is not a beautiful woman who hails from one of the nations that God said to totally destroy, but this is a beautiful woman who is from a city that you have gone to war against and you offered peace terms and they rejected the peace terms and you besieged the city and you took the city with the help of your fellow Israelites in the army of Israel, in the army of God. God gave you the victory. God gave Israel the victory. You took the city. You see this beautiful woman. She is a captive. You desire to take her to be your wife. Here is the protocol. And this whole protocol is never going to be a Veggie Tales story. It's never going to be a Sunday school topic. I'm 
pretty sure in most American churches, we're not going to go there. Why? Because this conflicts with our egalitarianism, for one thing, and also our immoderate dedication to liberty as if liberty were a god or a goddess. Liberty should be on God's terms. And, oh, by the way, whatever you want to call things, play semantics, if you will. We don't believe in unfettered, unrestrained, unrestricted freedom. And so maybe we should be more open-minded about this being a condition that could be met and that God is righteous and just for having, instead of forbidding it, regulated it. Because at root, my concern would be not, what if I'm ever in a situation where I want to take another wife who is a beautiful woman of a city that I've conquered? You know, that's not the issue here. The issue here is if we say this is wrong, this is corrupt, this is evil, this is bad, this is, what are we really finding fault with? We're really finding fault with God. We're really questioning his righteousness, his wisdom, his fairness, his goodness. And that, my friends, that is not a good place to be. We don't want to be there. And if we have some squeamishness here, I think it's all the more reason to meditate on what's that about? Are there some assumptions that we have about right and wrong that we're bringing to the text and we need to hold loosely and let God instruct us regarding. That should be our posture. That should be our mindset. Certainly in the case of Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. But you have this idea that a man can do this thing and God says, this is the way to do it. Not just you can, but here's how to do it, to do it properly and appropriately. And there's a protectiveness over this beautiful woman from an enemy nation, an enemy city, there's a protectiveness that we don't want to miss. Wherein the man who sees this beautiful woman and decides that he wants to take her as a wife has to give her time to grieve her mother and her father, who presumably have either died in the war, or if they haven't died, she's at least been taken from them. If she's been brought back to Israel, perhaps her mother and her father are still alive, but they are in the city that she was taken from. And so she's not staying with her mother and her father anymore. And if she had a husband, perhaps her husband was killed because when you take the city, if they didn't surrender, you're supposed to put every man to the sword. And so that would include if she had a husband, her husband, although nothing is said about him, But certainly if she had a father, then her father was put to the sword. And so she's mourning him. And all of this is very much more complicated and much more gritty than we have been led to believe. And I think that that is not so good. (laughs) I think that is not so good that folks like Phil Vischer and so many others have come to the biblical text again and again, and they have taken it upon themselves to clean it up because What are we implying? We're implying there's something untoward about God's word. Insofar as some of us have not been 
told that any of this was in there. And then we come to it and we recoil and we're repulsed and we say, oh, that's awful. That's horrible. Ugh. God commanded what? God allowed what? God permitted what? God regulated what? Oh, that's not right. Those who allowed us to have such a naive and ignorant view, such a childish, immature view of the way these things work, those people have some accounting to give. And I don't want to be one of their number. I don't want to join in with them. And so that's why we're reading these passages. That's why we're going through it. I don't always know what these things are supposed to be uh, translated into in our day, because not all of this pertains, particularly the atoning sacrifices business. But I believe, I agree, as it is written, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so there has to be a profit. There has to be a benefit. There has to be a blessing in meditating on what God is showing us, what he is telling us about himself that hasn't changed. Also, what he is telling us about right and wrong with regards to various kinds of hypothetical situations we might encounter. Even if we're not personally in those hypotheticals, we may encounter them. We may be asked, what about this? What about that? But perhaps there's a principle here with regards to the beautiful captive woman and how she is to be related to. Bring her home to your house, God says, and she shall shave her head and pare her nails. She shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. So there's a kind of ritual purification here. There's a kind of shedding of her old identity as someone who was a part of this enemy nation, and you need to give her that. And so there's a compassionate quality to this. And there's also a protective quality to this. For one, because she needs to put off her old identity. If she was an enemy or she was part of a nation that was an enemy of Israel, it's a dangerous thing for her to not put off her old identity. But what else do we read? If you no longer delight in her, verse 14, you shall let her go where she wants. Don't mistreat her. Don't abuse her. Don't torment her. Let her go, right? If you don't want her anymore at a certain point, rather than there be this enmity and strife, let her go. And don't sell her. Let her go. Don't treat her as a slave. You can't say, oh, I'm going to treat you like a wife. Oh, now I don't like you anymore. Now I'm going to treat you like a slave. Don't do that. That is disgraceful. That's not fair to her. That's not humane. That's wicked. God says, don't do that. Which is to say, also, if you're going to take her to be a wife, you're not taking her to be a wife so that you treat her as a slave, which is to say, you don't treat a wife as you would a slave. Will she submit to you? Yes, that's appropriate. But then that submission is not to be understood as slave to master. There's supposed to be a kindness, a love, a consideration that is special to marriage. And yet, on the other hand, on the other hand, there's a recognition at the end of verse 14, you have humiliated her. So this is a curious passage, and it's a difficult passage. It does not accord with many things which we have grown accustomed to 
assuming that God would permit, he would allow for a beautiful woman who is a captive from a foreign enemy to be humiliated. And yet at the same time, he would give instructions for her to be taken care of. Even as she's being humiliated, she's not to be treated in a cruel way, which is to say there's something of a distinction of humiliation as opposed to cruelty and mistreatment. The point is not to humiliate her, but then that is happening as a matter of course, because that's the nature of these things. There is supposed to be a restraint, but then by the nature of the making of wars and the making of widows, perhaps, possibly, or if this woman had never been married, the context of her becoming a wife here, especially if she's then put away after a time because it just doesn't work, right? This is not a good dynamic. There's bitterness on her part. She can't get over what you participated in, who you are. You still are regarded as an enemy. You can't get over the fact that she came from an enemy people. Whatever the reasons, let her go. Also, interesting, along similar lines, verse 15 through 17, you have God. And this is God, by the way. This is not just man's opinion. This is not my opinion. You have God saying, if a man has two wives, which is to say, a man may have two wives, which is to say, God is not ignorant about these things. And oh, by the way, again, 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 here's an opportunity for God to say, you should never, (laughs) if a man has two wives, don't. (laughs) If a man has two wives, he should pick one. That's not what God says. But there's a very pragmatic, a very realistic recognition that he may love one and not really love the other. And also he may get children by both. And if he gets children by the one that he loves and the one that he doesn't love so much, he is not to show favoritism. And this is interesting in relation to the story of Abram and Sarai, where Hagar and Ishmael were concerned. Although I would note, Hagar was not Abram's wife. So that's an important distinction. And this is yet another instance where we see the importance, the high value placed on marriage. Marriage is not just you shack up with someone for such and such an amount of time, although marrying female captives verses 10 through 14 is pretty informal. There's nothing about a ceremony. You don't go to the priest. It's just you bring her home to your house, you go through this ritual, give her a month, and then you can just be her husband. And you can just declare that that's what it is. That's curious. That's also a bit of a mind warp. Don't miss what's not there. (laughs) So also in verses 15 through 17, don't miss what's not there. What's not there is a prohibition. Not only does God permit it, he regulates it and he's not missing the implications. He understands God knows fully and even better than we ever will, the nitty-gritty details of what the consequences are likely to be in the case of a man having two wives. What are the implications? What are the consequences for the children of those two wives that he has? Favoritism. And this would be so easy for God to say, ah, because there may be favoritism, because that is a likely outcome if you have favoritism Among your wives, you will also translate that down to favoritism for the children 
born to you from those wives, it would be so easy for God to say, because that is what will happen, don't. (laughs) If you have two wives, don't. Lest you such and such. And God does that many times throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is fully capable of doing so. He doesn't do so. Don't miss that. Also, note verses 18 through 21, what to do with a rebellious son. Here again, we see community involvement. If a mother and a father cannot get their son to obey, he will not listen. He will not do what they tell him to do. He is willful. At a certain point, they can take that son to the elders of the city. Again, this is the elders of the city, not just all the men, worthless and virtuous alike, not just all the men, the elders of the city. So these are the chief men. These are probably the heads of their father's houses in the city. And then what do they say? This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then what do the men of the city do? Stone him to death with stones. Now, I've heard Dennis Prager talk about this passage, and he's gotten a question about it. Isn't that barbaric? Isn't that cruel? Isn't that child abuse? Dennis Prager's comment on it was, there's not a single solitary instance of this being recorded as having actually happened. And yet, perhaps possibly, this is in here as a prescription, as much to warn and get mothers and fathers and children and members of the community, the elders of the city, so to speak, whatever their corollary is, whatever their equivalent is in your context, all alike when they come across this passage, when we come across this passage, perhaps we're supposed to be sobered and to not allow things to get to this point in the first place, similar to finding a murder victim in the wilderness and we don't know who did it. You watch out. You try and head these things off before they get to this point And this is to say there's a certain standing that the men of the city, all the men are supposed to stone this rebellious son to death with stones, but there's a role for the men in the city in disciplining or encouraging young men, requiring of young men that they would listen to their mothers and their fathers. There is a role for the elders of the city in relation to telling parents, you need to get your son under control. You need to get your son to behave himself. He's not behaving himself right now. He's causing trouble. He's getting into fights. He's stealing things. He's breaking things. He's rude. He's disrespectful. He is headed down the road of perdition, and you are not training him up in the way that he should go so that when he's older, he won't depart from it. You're training him up to be lawless and wicked and evil, perhaps even a murderer at a certain point. As Dennis Prager points out, I think it's an excellent observation, perhaps, possibly, maybe, what's in view here is a recognition that the elders of the city have a role to play in making sure that the sons in their community are being raised appropriately in the fear and instruction of the Lord to be obedient to their parents. That is appropriate. For one, they're commanded, the sons are commanded to obey their father and their mother But also, it's appropriate for the elders to get involved at a certain point if that's not happening. It's appropriate for all of the men of the city to get involved at a certain point and to say, you listen to your mother. You listen to your father. 
You stop that. Your father told you not to do that. Don't do that. I see what you're doing over there. Don't do that. That's not okay. I'm going to go and speak with your father and let him know that you're doing this thing. And I'm going to talk with him. Maybe that's why this is here. But lastly, verses 22 through 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death. You hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree. Why? Right? Why? Why take him down and bury him the same day? We have the explanation. You shall not defile your land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so again, as with the man who's found who's a murder victim, even in the case of somebody who deserves the death penalty, perhaps for instance, they are the murderer of the man who was found uh, out in the wilderness. Perhaps they were this rebellious son also. Maybe this is all the same person. They're the son of the unloved wife. And there has been favoritism, even though they were the older son. There's bitterness, there's resentment like Cain and Abel. Perhaps they've killed their own brother who their father loved more, for instance. For example, hypothetically, Perhaps they're found and perhaps they are brought to the elders of the city because they're disobedient, because they're rebellious, because they're wicked, and perhaps they are put to death. And what does God say? Take them down and bury them. And what I have in view here is stories you'll come across various times as you're reading history, wherein this or that person is given a public execution. This was kind of a big thing centuries ago. It's not so much anymore. But a lot of these public executions were grisly, tortuous, horrific affairs. And they were, I think, wrong. I think they did defile the land after a fashion. And for that matter as well, what you'll encounter when you read about public executions, especially of very hated public figures, public uh, officials, maybe men who had staged rebellions or made war. Think William Wallace, for instance. Think Indian chiefs, for instance. Think famous pirates. What you would have is not just a public execution, but also displaying their head on a pike or putting them in a gibbet and hanging that above the gates or on the walls as people would come into and out of the city. They would see that dead body of this man who had been condemned and publicly executed, and it would serve as a constant reminder. God says, don't do that. You're defiling the land. In the case of Israel, we can say, ah, well, okay, yeah, you know, that's for Israel. But I think it's not just for Israel. I think that insofar as Israel is supposed to be an example to the nations, I think we can reasonably deduce from this that for us to do something like this, even if we're not Israel, it defiles the land and we ought not to. Let's move on to some current events items, though. And I want to get to a bigger topic in this episode before we run out of time. And I want to try and discipline myself to have shorter episodes. I told my wife I would. And I think there are a lot of people who would be relieved for me to have shorter and more episodes instead of longer and fewer episodes. But Brandon Dre over at the Daily Wire for our first story, 
has a report on the so-called QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, sitting down for a chat with Michael Knowles, wearing the shamanic regalia, seated across in a warehouse from Michael Knowles wearing a sharp-looking blazer and suit pants, dressed dapper as ever. It's uh, quite the contrast. (laughs) You know, shirtless, wearing furs and a buffalo hat, all tatted up, face paint. You've got two very, very different people, Michael Knowles and Jacob Chansley. I'm 49 minutes in to this back and forth discussion. It's more of a conversation. There is an interview quality to it. It's two hours, 12 minutes long. It's a fascinating discussion so far. But one thing I want to bring up is this business of Jacob Chansley having shown up at these demonstrations, these events leading up to January 6th. He was showing up in pictures and footage all over the country. And then January 6th happened. And there he is. And he was the poster child for the January 6th narrative for the media. They wanted you to see him and to associate him with the MAGA crowd, make America great again hats, American flag waving dangerous insurrectionists. And this guy, Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman, is eccentric. Uh, Actually, he's got some very interesting things to say. I don't think he's crazy, but he's got some weird ideas. He's got some very new age beliefs. And he is into shamanism. That's not just a costume. He is into shamanism. And he has some very, very strange beliefs. But it's a good discussion. And in the course of the discussion, they're going back and forth about what's happened to him since January 6th. Being arrested, being in prison, interacting with other people in prison. And as he says, and this is where I really want to tie this into Deuteronomy 21, where he says there are good people in prison and then there are some dirtbags. There are some people who really need to be in prison. They are bad people, very bad people, bad spirits that they have. When he talks about some people being good and it being too easy for a corrupt government to just indefinitely detain innocent people who just happen to disagree with them politically, we do well to listen. You know, what he's saying can have merit and it can be true along certain lines and in certain regards without you having to agree with him on everything. And we need to know that that is how it works in order for us to have the ability to make decisions together again We need to know that that's how it works in order for us to have reasonable political processes, in order for there to be accountability for those who are under authority and also for those who are in authority. But just in passing, I want to bring up something I've said before. From my experience doing prison ministry and from having thought about this for years, from having studied the word of God, I don't believe we should be indefinitely detaining and warehousing criminals. I don't find that to be at all biblical. If you have somebody who's suspected of having committed murder, but we don't know that they're 
with hateful intent. We should have something like sanctuary cities. We should have something like what is described in the Bible. And I think there's an appropriate place for prisons in that regard, that we would allow those people to be protected from the families of those they may have killed accidentally. It may not have been ill intent, but they did kill this person. And now they should be for their own protection and for the protection of other people kept away from the rest of the community for a time, maybe not forever. Now, if they are a murderer and it's known that they are a murderer, they did mean to kill the person. They threatened to kill this person. There are two or three witnesses or more. The evidence is clear. They did mean to, they intended to, it is murder. They should be put to death. We shouldn't be putting them in the warehouse prison system in perpetuity. And we definitely shouldn't be putting a murderer behind bars with people who have committed other crimes or who are accused of committing other crimes or they're suspected. They're just the top suspect for having committed other crimes. We shouldn't be putting those people all together in a warehouse in perpetuity for years or decades of their life. That's not right. That's not biblical. That's not just. It's wrong to condemn an innocent man. And so Jacob Chansley talks a little bit about capital punishment, how he thinks it's ludicrous that conservatives are pro-life on the question of abortion, but they're also not pro-life when it comes to capital punishment for certain criminals. And again, I say it's important for us to come to the text asking God to tell us what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is true and false, what is justice, instead of us coming to the text and telling God, no, no, you're wrong on that. We're not going to do that. But this idea for a moment, of political opponents, people who are in the way, people who are perhaps possibly trying to provide accountability, trying to cross-examine the first to state his case, who may be guilty themselves of committing a crime. Again, go back to Deuteronomy 21. The elders of the nearest city when a man is found murdered, but we don't know who did it, they are to come together and pledge They did not shed this man's blood, and they don't know who did. But they wouldn't have to say something like that if there weren't ever the case that they themselves may have been the ones who arranged for the killing or they did the killing themselves because this person had offended them or stood between them and what they wanted, maybe a piece of property, maybe a business deal, maybe some other sin that they were trying to keep from becoming public knowledge because there would have been an accountability piece. Jacob Chansley is right to point out that it's too easy if we have a faulty view of the prison system and the justice system. It's too easy for corrupt, very wealthy, very powerful men to throw their political opponents, throw their accountability partners after a fashion behind bars in perpetuity, and to terrify everyone else into silence because, oh, if I can do it to him, I'll do it to you too. There are real consequences, very serious consequences to a nation, to a people, to a tribe, to a city when we allow justice to be arbitrary and we decouple our ideas of justice from God's word. Very, very serious consequences. And I think we're seeing that Over the last several years, especially, particularly as Michael Knowles was just explaining, and the part that I paused at before 
starting to record this podcast episode, he was just explaining how he was going on Tucker Carlson's program and he was backstage waiting to be called and he saw the J6 tapes footage of Jacob Chansley being escorted by Capitol Police to the chamber for the photo op. And he looked at that and he thought, wow, that is not what we were told over the last few years. And to know that that can happen at that level and that so many media entities can help run interference for the narrative, politicians can jump on board and try and ram through certain things before anybody gets wise to the evidence that this was staged, this was orchestrated, this was made for TV. If it can happen in the instance of J6, then I think we get a clearer and clearer picture of why January 6th happened in the first place. But moving on, let's follow up on that Jason Aldean song, Try That in a Small Town, briefly. Andrew Chapados over at The Blaze published a piece the day before yesterday, July 20th. Jason Aldean music video filmed at lynching site, Associated Press claims. It's actually a famous courthouse where Hannah Montana was filmed. <laughs> so the AP widely disseminated an article that claimed Jason Aldean's music video was filmed at a site where in 1927, a mob lynched an 18-year-old black teenager named Henry Choate. And the narrative, the association, as with Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman, as with January 6th, as with Donald Trump, as with all of flyover America, all of the basket of deplorables, the negative association you were supposed to deduce from that was that Jason Aldean wrote a pro-lynching song, which you can verify very easily. Go read the lyrics, go watch the music video. There's not a single solitary reference to black people. Now, if we understand that sucker punching somebody on the street actually was happening, there was a knockout challenge, so-called, wherein young black men in particular were just going up to total strangers, in particular white people in American cities, and sucker punching them, knocking them out, seeing if they could knock them out while recording. You might understand that there's something to go on here. This was happening, but Jason Aldean's song wasn't pro-violence. It was saying, you cannot act in this violent way, this lawless way in a small town. We will not let you. We will not permit that, which is proper. It's proper for small town folks to say, we're not going to permit that. And oh, by the way, going back to Deuteronomy 21, what was I saying about a rebellious son who won't obey his parents, won't listen to his parents, and the role that the elders of the city have in seeing that some headstrong, lawless young man is not just running amok. What was it I was saying about the men, all the men of the city, having a responsibility to provide a check on rebellious, lawless young men? That's what Jason Aldean is talking about. And it's not about skin color. It's about right and wrong. It's about you don't treat people that way. That's evil. That's wrong. That's lawless. It won't be tolerated. But here's the curious thing. 
fact check <laughs> regarding this courthouse in Maury County, Columbia, Tennessee. Sure, maybe it was the site of a lynching in 1927. Sure, maybe it was the site of a race riot in 1946. But also, too, if it's where Hannah Montana, the movie, was filmed, it's a curious thing that you didn't scandalize Hannah Montana for being filmed with this as one of the scenes, this courthouse being the backdrop for one of the scenes. It's curious that you didn't scandalize that, but of course we know the reasons why. You're trying to push a narrative so that you can destroy publicly someone who is criticizing your politics and actually criticizing your corruption, because that's what it is for the media that ran interference for Antifa and Black Lives Matter riots in the U.S. that killed innocent men and women and children, targeting law enforcement, looting, burning businesses, vehicles, destruction of property, lawlessness. The media ran interference, and just so, they are trying to bring the heat to Jason Aldean, and they're trying to destroy him. They're trying to destroy his reputation, and CMT is complicit for having taken his music video down without explanation on these very dubious claims, on this threat of outrage, this threat of boycott, this threat of excommunication by the left. But let's talk about another instance of the media trying to promote a narrative that is corrupt and dishonest and vile and unjust, providing false testimony, as if this is the court of public opinion and they want to try everything in the court of public opinion so that they can be participants, facilitators of revolution. Harris Rigby over at Not to Be published a piece July 18th. Shocker, Bloomberg's criticism of anti-trafficking movie, Sound of Freedom, written by minor attracted persons advocate who defends pedophilia. So here is a opinion piece published at Bloomberg by Noah Berlatsky with the title QAnon and Sound of Freedom both rely on tired Hollywood tropes. Subtitle, sex trafficking movies routinely skip over some very important questions which gives the conspiratorial right room to run wild. Joel Berry tweeted out, the creep who wrote that article also wrote this. And this is a piece, again, by Noah Berlatsky, dated January 20th, 2016, with the title, Child Sex Worker's Biggest Threat, The Police. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Let's pause for a moment to consider the first three words of this piece child sex workers, which is to say what you're describing is child prostitutes. So what you're describing is children who have been put into prostitution by adults in their lives, which is to say this is not conspiracy theory if you are admitting that there are children who are forced into prostitution by adults, whether those adults kidnap them, abduct them, or groom them in their neighborhoods and in the schools, et cetera, et cetera. Here is a tweet from 
Noah Berlatsky, February 21st, 2017, and I quote, pedophiles are essentially a stigmatized group. Certain people get designated as deviants. People hate them. Uh, First of all, pedophiles are a stigmatized group. That's correct. And that's how it should be. That is appropriate. You're trying to imply that pedophiles are a victim class. They are oppressed. But no, no, no. The ones who are being oppressed here are the children who are being abducted and sold into sex work, sold into sex slavery. Those are the victims here. The pedophiles are not the victims. The pedophiles are the victimizers. They're the predators. (laughs) The pedophiles are the oppressors. Let's get that straight. Yes, they are deviants. And if people hate them for being predatory towards children, well... Maybe we can get into a debate about whether we should hate the sin or hate the sinner, but we should definitely at least hate the sin. And there should be very severe consequences for this particular kind of sin against children, against the innocent. Prostatia Foundation has a piece by Noah Berlatsky, May 24th, 2021, screenshotted here. Child trafficking narratives are misleading is the title of the piece. The first paragraph and a half is included in the screen snip. And I quote, when most people hear human trafficking, they think of kidnapped young cis, mostly white girls sold into enforced sexual slavery by criminal gangs composed mostly of people of color. Lurid depictions of this kind of crime are common in film and television like 2014's Eden based on a now debunked true story or 2017's Trafficked. Any underage person who trades sex is considered a trafficking victim under most legal definitions, but most of these underage trafficking victims are not kidnapped or coerced. And let's just stop right there. There may be many reasons why these kinds of scenarios develop and occur and become established. But what can't be disputed is that these children are told by somebody that this is good and that this is appropriate or this is necessary or this is attractive. Someone is telling them to engage and whether those people who are telling them to engage in prostitution are telling them, you do it or else I'm going to hurt you, or they're telling them, you do this and I'll give you a reward. Either way, this is predatory behavior. So you can try and claim that the real problem here is conservatives. The real bogeyman here is conservatives who are upset about these things. You can try and twist it into being something about race. But at root, this is about protecting children from predators, period. This is about protecting children from being kidnapped in particular and sold into slavery. Now, I'll stop right there. There is more to Harris Rigby's piece over at Not The Bee from July 18th. You can go check it out. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. But I want to talk just briefly while we're here, while we're on this topic of the sound of freedom and human trafficking and media narratives and January 6th and Jacob Chansley and Jason Aldean and small towns and big cities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's bring it all back to Deuteronomy 21. Let's talk about 
how needlessly complicated and manipulative so much of this discourse is, and how suspicious the word games are. For the media to try and portray, and the mainstream media has been trying to portray, the sound of freedom as just one big QAnon conspiracy. And so you shouldn't go watch it, but it's doing very well at the box office. So you can see how well that's working. It's like reverse psychology. People are hearing from the mainstream media, don't go watch this movie. It's nonsense. It's a conservative right-wing fever dream, all made up to try and win votes, win elections. And people are like, what? I have to see this movie. (laughs) The suspicious quality to all of the above is that we have people in media who, where they are required by God to provide faithful testimony and to not corrupt justice, what are they doing? They suppress witnesses so long as those witnesses would implicate the people who own the media companies, the people who run for office as establishment Republican types or as Democrats. They suppress witness testimony. They hide the truth. If the folks who would be implicated are folks who are advancing the progressive agenda, they take the side of the predators who portray themselves as sheep. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. And if they're not, the closest thing we get to a mass movement of wolves in sheep's clothing in our context in the year 2023, then I'm wrong about a lot. (laughs) These are wolves in sheep's clothing. The media spreads false reports to try and destroy men in particular doing the right thing, protecting the innocent, trying to reward those who do what is good, That gets turned into corruption, trying to punish those who do evil or threatening to punish those who would do what is evil in your own community. That gets turned into being pro-violence, being racist. And yet, as a Christian, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to think about a corrupt media providing false testimony to condemn those who are innocent on the one hand and to exonerate those who are guilty. How am I supposed to talk about these things in a blameless way? What am I supposed to do about these things in order to maintain clean hands and to not spread a false report? For that matter as well, where very powerful people in positions of political authority, in the government, in the bureaucracies, or if they are elected members of Congress or If they're mayors and city council members and governors, the president, if they are behaving corruptly and doing what is evil, what God has said very clearly is evil and wicked and sinful, oppressive, murderous, rapine, fraudulent. As a Christian, how am I supposed to relate to these things? Well, there are at least a few obvious options. One is stay out of it. Don't listen, don't watch, don't talk about it, don't hang out with people who talk about it, just stay out of all that. That's one option. Play it safe. Hide yourself. Mind your own business as narrowly defined as you possibly can manage. And that is a lot of American Christians' idea of 
how to have a good testimony, how to have a good conscience, how to mind their own affairs. Another option is to watch, listen, and jump in, both feet. Jump in on the deep end and throw all your weight in to trying to stop these people, trying to stop the corrupt politicians, trying to stop the corrupt corporations, trying to stop the corrupt news media, trying to protect the kids. But that's overwhelming, right? That's an overwhelming thing. And you're quickly exhausted because it's too much. What you're up against is too much. And you know it, and I know it. And I talk about these things. I bring them up on my podcast, and I hope that's helpful. And it probably gives away something of my answer to what I think we should do. But that is to say, I think there's a third option, at least a third. And that is, you don't check out. That's not right. This becomes your business. If it's a rabid dog in your neighborhood, if it's a mountain lion where you're taking your family to hike or camp or fish or hunt, it is your business before the rabid dog charges your child, before the mountain lion jumps from the trees above and behind you onto your back. It is your business to pay attention. And so also what we're dealing with is the most dangerous animal, man. Man being a political animal, when man hunts in packs and has quite a lot of money and quite a lot of power and a lot of connections, man is very, very dangerous. And so I don't believe it's wise to jump in with both feet. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I don't think it's wise to jump in and try and fight everything all at once, all at the same time. And yet, here's what I would say. I would say be not ignorant and call for repentance calmly, consistently, and keep your hands from participating in these things. But that requires, friends, Romans, countrymen, that requires that you know when to say, I can't do that. I can't say that. That requires if you would not be complicit, if you would not be a party to this corruption in these various spheres, you have to, one, call others to repent of it, warn them soberly in the gravest possible terms to turn away from their sins, to believe what is true when you have opportunities, when you have openings, let the Lord lead and guide you as to how you take advantage of those opportunities. Prepare yourself to be able to speak the word of God faithfully, to rightly handle the word of truth. But then also too, you have to have a correct political theology as it pertains to civil disobedience and obeying God rather than men. There's no disputing, okay? There's no disputing that to take Edmund Burke's conception of either ratifying or nullifying the laws of God, that being all men really have to do when we write human laws, there's no disputing that the laws of God have been rejected by our corporate news media. The social media entities do not abide by in a general sense, the laws of God. Most of our prominent establishment career politicians maybe at best will listen if you bring up the laws of God, but they have no fear of God and they don't see God's commands, his promises, his character, his purposes as authoritative or relevant at all. Except if you bring it up, in many cases, they say, in the interest of Maintaining separation of church and state, we're going to favor the opposite of whatever God commanded. 
very publicly. We're going to reward it. We're going to affirm it. We're going to celebrate it. We're going to honor it. But in that case, at what point, at what point have they really set up the conditions for telling you, commanding you to do what God said to not do or forbidding you to do what God has commanded you to do without a intentional, well thought out political theology that is grounded in, that is predicated on the word of God, you are going to do the evil that you are told to do because you're just following orders. Without grounding your political theology in the word of God, predicating it on the promises of God, the character of God, the commands of God, you are going to stop doing what is good because you're just following orders. You will be a double-minded man and you don't want that. You'll be unstable in all of your ways and you don't want that. You want to confess and to be of one mind and in agreement with God because as Abraham Lincoln once said, God is always right. Now in our next episode, I intend to talk about some specific instances that actually go back to 2020 with regards to COVID policy, because COVID, I believe it was a test case for where are we at? It was beta testing for a broader tyranny, a broader and more comprehensive and pervasive totalitarianism, which the left has wanted to impose here in the U.S. for quite some time, and they want to impose it on the world in the next several years. We're going to talk about some instances coming out of 2020 and kind of where are we at now? Where have those situations gone? For the purposes of this episode, I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. One, we need to have a sobriety about what is our business, what is our affair in the community. If murder is being committed, don't rule out the possibility that sometimes the governing officials turn a blind eye because they've been paid to, they've accepted bribes, or they have a conflict of interest because their own family is involved in the crime and the criminal activity. Don't rule that out. The plausibility of that dynamic is embedded firmly in Deuteronomy 21. You can't miss it. Also, oh, by the way, let's come to the biblical text with a commitment to being transformed by the renewing of our minds Let's not ever, ever, ever come to the biblical text supposing we know better than God. We are more righteous than God. We are wiser than God. That is hubris. That is arrogance. God opposes that. He opposes the proud, which is to say he doesn't just oppose pride. He opposes the proud. Let's not be proud. Let's be humble. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. And if we will, if we will seek his face, if we will confess our sins and turn and pursue righteousness He will hear from heaven. He will forgive us our sins. He will heal our land. And just lastly, that is the noble pursuit when we engage in these things. Sometimes, yes, it's complicated. Sometimes it's messy. But if this sound of freedom business should teach us anything, if the whole January 6th narrative unraveling before our eyes should teach us anything, it's that Real men, women, and children's lives are at stake. And for us to say nothing, for us to do nothing, for us to stand back is not 
a fulfillment of either the first and greatest commandment that sums up all the law and the prophets, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, or a fulfillment of the second command, which is like the first, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. These are things we have to grapple with. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. But boy, howdy, we must believe that there's a reward, not just in this life, but in eternity. God is faithful. Trust in God. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.